Welcome to uh, a real highlight of the Peak Ender Weekend here in Bakewell. We're, uh, we're meeting a brewery with uh, an incredible reputation right around the world, all the way from California, Firestone Walker. Um, this is... Uh, there we go, round of applause. Work that crowd. Um, so this is uh, Matt, I'm going to try and pronounce your surname, I hope I get it right. Matt Brindleson. Uh, there we go. Uh, and you are the brewmaster. That is your job title. Yeah, I often refer to myself as the broom master. I'm always clean enough. Yeah. <laughs> That's the less showbiz part of it. A uh, quick intro from me. I'm James Marriott from Beer Here Now, the official Thornbridge Brewery podcast. So hello to our live audience here in Tent 2. And also hello to everyone who's listening to the podcast of this. So uh, if you're here live, then say hello to everyone that's listening at home. Yeah. Woo! That's good. Missing all the sunshine. And the mud. Right, um, Matt and I are going to have a bit of a chat. Uh, we've got a few beers that we're going to try, and then we'll throw things open to you guys if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask. Don't be shy. It's not very often that you get this kind of opportunity to fire questions at the brewmaster himself. So uh, if you do have a question, this is your chance to ask it. Um, first question, Matt, is this your first time at Peak Ender? It is, yeah. This and is the first time in this part of uh, the UK as well. How are you enjoying the British summertime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last night was amazing, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen that kind of rain before. But I was, I was very impressed with you all. Uh, everyone just seemed to go with it. Um, I, had a, I had a blast. It was amazing. Does, does mud exist in California? Is it a thing? Not, not this time Have you ever year. seen it no, before? No, You have to fabricate it, yes. Um, right, Firestone Walker. I know the answer to this, but for anyone that doesn't, see the name Firestone Walker, it sounds to me like something that's going to be like, inspired by Twin Peaks or Lord <laughs> of the Rings. The true story is not that exciting, though, is it? Actually, I think it's a pretty exciting story. Um, the Firestone part of Firestone Walker, so there's two partners who started the brewery back in 1996, Adam Firestone, uh, born in California, but a lot of his family roots are here in the UK. His mom was born and raised here in the UK. Uh, and David Walker, who is 100% from uh, the southern part of England. I couldn't tell you exactly where from. So, um, But Adam's great-grandfather, Harvey Firestone, started the tire business. And so it is linked somewhat to that uh, that family, although his father was one of the younger sons, so he wasn't heir apparent, and by that time the family had diversed um, and sold some of the company. So his father planted grapes in the San Ynez Valley, which is in the central part of California, and started growing uh, wine grapes and later became a vintner, and Adam eventually took over that company, um, and along the way got really interested in craft beer. So he and his brother-in-law, David Walker, uh, started Firestone Walker Brewing Company. And I always say they had this kind of interesting cocktail napkin business plan in the beginning. That sounded great uh, on paper, at least on the napkin. It was they were going to do barrel fermented ales, and what they wanted to do was use the used Chardonnay barrels from the winery and repurpose them for making beer. However, you got to remember, this was in 1996, so what we have come to love, and we'll taste one of these beers, sour beers and, um, you know, kind of these... Uh, wild and, and, and sour type products that are inspired by Belgium breweries was not popular in 96. So their first experiments with the Chardonnay barrels were terrible. You know, I was told it was like salad dressing at best. Um, they later hired then a brewmaster, uh, my predecessor, Jeffrey Richardson, who came to the UK and spent some time in Burton-upon-Trent and studied the Burton Union system, went back home 
and created, and actually it was patented by the company at one point, what we call the Firestone Union. And so our very first beer, Double Barrel Ale, was an English bitter, or is an English bitter, and it is fermented in this oak union system. Um, so we have a lot of roots uh, in this part of the world. So at what point do you get involved with Firestone Walker? So I joined the company in 2001. So the, the company was approximately five years old, six years old at that time. Uh, still a very, relatively small operation. In fact, the original brewery was on uh, in a barn on the winery property. And their original concept was just to make beer for their kind of wine clientele. Um, they were more fascinated by the process than becoming entrepreneurs that were going to start a large brewery. But by the time I came in, they had uh, found a nice niche in the central part of California. We're selling a lot of double barrel ale there and needed to expand. So they moved the brewery off the winery property to a brewery that already existed in Paso Robles. Um, and that's when I came into uh, to the position of brewmaster. I'm glad you said that because I wasn't looking forward to trying to pronounce the place Paso Robles without you saying El it first. Paso so. de Robles is how we say it. <laughs> that's good. Um, we'll, we'll chat a bit more about kind of the brewery setup, but obviously we've got the first beer that's kind of gone out now. So just tell us a little bit about the, the, the beer that everyone's trying now. Yeah, so I mentioned that we have a barrel fermenting program, the Firestone Union, and for the first 10 years of our brewery's existence, we really focused on that. And in fact, some breweries, uh, the brewery that I worked for formerly, Goose Island Beer Company, was rather famous for Bourbon County Stout. So when I came to Firestone, I thought that was one of the things I was going to bring to the company was barrel aging, especially spirits barrel aging. And the owners wanted nothing to do with it because they really want to differentiate themselves as a brewery that fermented in barrels didn't age in barrels, because we spent a lot of time trying to explain that story. And it wasn't until our 10th anniversary that the, the, the owners kind of allowed me, Adam and David allowed me to make whatever beer I wanted. And I decided, okay, this is my chance to do spirits barrel-aged beer. And as we got into the process of formulating a brew, I first started with an imperial brown, because I thought that would pair well with barrels. I made an imperial stout. I made a blonde barley wine. And I kind of woke up close to the day of needing to launch this beer, realizing I had six or eight different beers in barrel and no actual beer to release. And I kind of got a little like freaked out. I didn't know what to do. So I called upon some of the local winemakers in our area, because we're right in a large winemaking area, the Paso Robles winemaking area. Um, contacted about a dozen of my winemaker friends, had them come down to the brewery, had them taste through all the beers, and they helped me create a blend. And so for our 10th anniversary, we released a blended beer that had five or six components in it, blended by the winemakers, which sounded kind of crazy, um, but it really was a hit. And in many ways, it kind of took us out of being this somewhat regional, um, you know, making a, a fairly pedestrian English bitter to a brewery that suddenly splashed onto the beer geek scene making this barrel-aged beer. And that, that sparked this program, which I call the Vintage Reserve Series. They're spirits barrel-aged beers. And at one point, the winemakers were asking for a beer that had a little more sweetness for this blend. And so I came up with this beer called Sticky Monkey, um, thinking that it would be more of a sticky beer, you know? Um, it's got a lot of caramel malt. It has Belgian candy sugar in it. It has um, turbino sugar from Mexico, which is a brown type of like almost molasses-like sugar. And the idea was to really make this somewhat sweet tooth beer. It was supposed to be just a blending component. Uh, once it came out of barrels, it spends about one year in bourbon barrels. Uh, those bourbon barrels come from Kentucky. We typically work with Heaven Hill or Four Roses. If you know, if you're, if you're, if you have a bourbon tooth and you know bourbon, those are two fairly well-known distillers in the Kentucky area. 
So the beer sits one, one year in barrel, and after we pulled it out, we liked it so much, the, the, it goes in quite, I would say, sweet and unbalanced, comes out of the bourbon barrels with quite a bit of that, almost like toffee, a little bit of oak astringency helps blend, and it has some coconut and vanilla uh, flavors from the barrel. And uh, so Sticky Monkey originally was supposed to be a blending component, now it's a regular release beer. 12% alcohol, so sorry to hit you, hit you hard in the morning, but uh, you know, it's afternoon, we're good. And um, yeah, we don't release it every single year. I think at this point we'll probably release it every other year or every three years, but it ages quite well. I can tell from the way that you're talking about it, this is a beer that you're really proud of. <laughs> I love all my children, I think, <laughs> this, this one especially. Um, so tell us a bit about your brewery setup because we talked about Paso Robles. Paso Robles, yes. Uh, but you've got more than one site, is that, is that right? Yeah, so um, like I said, we started in the winery property. The owners live down the San Ynez Valley, which is closer to Santa Barbara, if you know California geography. Um, and they had put a building together down there uh, in a town called Buellton that was supposed to be the new production facility. And then an existing brewery became available in 2001 in Paso Robles. So they kind of scrapped that plan, moved north to Paso Robles, and we've been brewing there ever since. But we still had this facility in Buellton. We built a restaurant in it. And then later on, we decided to get involved in um, making sour beers, making some wild ales. And... We decided it would be nice, to, you know, very convenient to have that program outside of the regular brewing program. Obviously, there's a lot of critters involved in making sour beer, Pediococcus, Lactobacillus, Britannomyces. Um, and so our quality control director, who had spent his entire 12-year career protecting our beer and warding it off, warding, you know, bread away from our beer and Lacto and, and Pediococcus, Jim Crooks, moved down to Buellton and started a sour beer program. Um, so that's our second brewery. And then our third brewery we have in Venice Beach is really just a brew pub. It's a 10 hectoliter kit that we do all of our R&D in. Um, and it also gives us a little bit of a footprint in the Los Angeles area, which is our fastest growing and biggest beer market. So it sounds like a, a pretty big operation. Um, throw some numbers at us then in terms of um, kind of staff, in terms of um, how much beer you're producing. Yeah. Um, so... I just visited uh, uh, our host brewery, Thornbridge, yesterday with Rob, who's here. And um, our, our original kit in Paso Robles is the same size, so approximately a 50 heck, or a fi we call it 50 barrel uh, kit. And we uh, very recently commissioned a second brew house, which is a 300 barrel brew house, which sounds massive. Um, but we have a brand that we sell predominantly in California called 805. 805 is the telephone area code uh, for the central part of California. But interestingly enough, it's the area code for everything between Los Angeles and Monterey County, which is a massive part of California and happens to be where a lot of people in California go to vacation. So when you say 805, it kind of brings the smile to people's faces because they think of that vacation they had in Pismo Beach or something like that. We, we launched a blonde ale called 805 and it just went Richter. And so we kind of set up a separate brewing kit almost just to handle the volume in that beer and use our smaller kit for these special beers. Um, a lot of our IPAs come off the smaller kit or double IPAs, hazy beers, things like that. Uh, and the big kits for this, this monster that kind of just came out of nowhere, 805. 
Um, I'm guessing most people that, that are here will have had some experience of your beers. Um, I can't kind of ask you to go through every one because we'd be here all afternoon, but um, if you were to pick out maybe four or five beers that, that you've brewed or that you brew now that you're really kind of proud of, um, and, and just tell us a bit about it, about them. Yeah, I mean, so we start out brewing this, this English pale ale, English bitter, and when I came to the brewery, it was really interesting. They had three beers, and they were basically just light, there was a pale ale, medium, there was a bitter, and dark, there was a stout. And when I went through the recipes, they all had the same hops. They kind of just had different range of specialty malt. So from my point of view at that, that moment, it wasn't that creative in terms of the formulation. So one of the things that I brought to the brewery um, was dry hopping, which nowadays, I mean, it's hard to find a beer that doesn't have dry hopping, but in those days, that was kind of a unique technique anyway in a craft brewery. Uh, we had a beer called Pale 31, another beer called Union Jack IPA, which really were the leaders in the brewery for many years before 805 was born. Uh, so some of our dry hop beers um, I'm quite proud of. Um, taking a step back when I was at Goose Island Beer Company in this will date me in the mid to late 90s, I got to help formulate Goose Island IPA, which now that unfortunately that brewery now is owned by ABI and you find that beer all over the world. I went to China and I saw uh, this IPA, and I was like, wow, I don't know why that, that royalty check doesn't show up in the mailbox. <laughs> yeah, but um, So I've been kind of at it with dry hopping and making hoppy beers since the beginning of my career. Um, other beers I'm very proud of, and, and Rob will be uh, happy to hear this, Peebo Pilsner. It's one of the beers that has been maybe one of our more award-winning beers more recently. Certainly not our best seller, but one that's always in all the brewers' fridges all the time. And I think, you know, the more brewers you talk to, especially us that have been around for a while, you know, we're just fascinated with lagers. We love drinking lagers. Making lagers is a little more technically uh, difficult, and making a really clean, perfectly balanced lager is kind of like, you know, this, this thing that, that, that brewers have been around for a while always get into. It might not be as interesting from the, the beer geekery side of things. Um, and then certainly these barrel-aged beers are a lot of fun. Um, 2015, things changed a bit for um, Firestone Walker. Um, should I describe it as a merger? Is that the, the correct phrasing? Yeah, I, th I, th I think you can. I mean, um, it was, we, we always kind of refer to it as a partnership because that's the way it works. Um, but we had a majority share ownership change to Duvelmore Gott, which is a very famous Belgian brewery. And really what happened was um, a couple of years prior to that, in 2012, we launched 805. And we were this little happy brewery kind of humming along at just below 100,000 barrels a year, which is a lot of beer. I mean, our brewery had grown when I started at the company in 2001. That year we made 9,000 hectoliters. So here we were, a, a real brewery running around the clock. Uh, you know, had 20 brewers on staff and, um, you know, twice as many packaging staff. I mean, we had a really big, you know, we're a 100, 100 person brewery and then 805 was born and we just couldn't keep up. It just took off like a wildfire. And at that point, you know, the owners had invested a lot of money. They knew in order to keep up with this brand, if we were going to, it was going to take maybe three or four times more money than they'd already spent in the company. Um, they're not old, they weren't ready to retire yet, but they certainly were looking at this huge debt they were about to take on, and they decided rather than just go for it by themselves, they would rather partner up. And certainly we talked to just about everybody, big breweries, small breweries, investment bankers and the like, and when we met the Duval Group, and I don't know how familiar you are with Duval Morgat, but it's a brewery that's about the same size as Sierra Nevada, which is kind of the most famous craft brewer in the United States, and you're probably familiar with them. Um, you know, it's a family-run, independent organization. The owner, Michelle Morgat, is as passionate about beer as anybody I've ever met. 
Um, if you look at their range of beers, they're, they are all on the high end. Um, they're very European focused. They know a lot about markets that we don't know about. And they were willing to jump in kind of head first into our project and finance the new brew house and help us grow. Uh, and I tell you, there isn't a single Belgian living in Paso Robles. So, you know, they really have allowed us to function independently and are truly a partner. Um, Hedwig Neven, the brewmaster of Duval, is probably the most insanely uh, well-schooled uh, brewmaster. He's a professor at the University of Leuven. He has a PhD in brewing science. Um, so for me, as a brewmaster, it was just this awesome opportunity to tap into some knowledge. Uh, and if ever we have a question, I can call up Hedwig and he's got an answer. Uh, and in fact, my family and I just moved over to Antwerp and I'm spending a one-year brewing sabbatical at the Duval Brewery just trying to soak it up. So, the, you know, this partnership afforded me that opportunity. That sounds really positive. Um, I, find it, I find it interesting because I think in the UK we have a kind of a natural sort of suspicion of, of takeovers and mergers and things in the, in the craft beer world. We've, we've um, got Beavertown in the, in the house with us, um, who, you know, obviously that was very well documented, kind of public reaction to that. What, what was the public reaction like in the, in the US to, um, to, to, to your deal? Is it, is it a similar sort of thing? Is there a suspicion there or, or oh, is it a different? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, there have been, you know, um, ABI has purchased, I think, 12, maybe more now, uh, craft breweries all around the country. And so, you know, you were reading about it in the paper all the time, and that was getting a lot of negative press. Certainly, Heineken has also, you know, bought into breweries like Lagunitas. So we've had a lot of that activity in the United States, too. And most people do react somewhat negative to it. I think that we were fortunate in that I think we got a lot of support from other craft industry people who also love Duval. You know, um, Rob, you, you mentioned yesterday that Duval is one of your kind of desert island beers, and it's mine as well. And I think a lot of brewers just couldn't help but give up a little respect for that. Um, Duval has purchased other breweries in the past. Uh, they know they own um, Leafman's, De Koenig, and Le Chouf in Belgium, all really world-class brands. They've done nothing but just bolster and invest in them. If you visit any of those breweries, it's pretty insane. Like Michelle really spares no expense and always wants everything to be perfect, uh, best technology possible. And that's kind of what they bring. And uh, so I think a lot of the industry was like, okay, you know, we'll give these guys a pass on this one. It's pretty cool. On, on a kind of a wider note, how, how have you seen kind of beer and brewing change in your time in the industry? Oh, man. Yeah. So I've been around for a while, right? So I've been brewing for <laughs> more than 25 years. And I've actually seen a couple waves. You know, when I started in the 90s, Goose Island Beer Company uh, in Chicago, believe it or not, the last independent or the last functioning brewery, production brewery in Chicago had closed in the 70s. And Goose Island opened as a brew pub as the first new brewery in Chicago, a six million person market uh, in 1988. And then we started a production brewery in 96 and it was just, you know, there was like an insatiable demand. Our first year of production, we did 25,000 barrels in the Chicago market. And so I came in, that was my first brewing job, and it was just trial by fire, and it was like we could never make enough beer. And then three or four short years later, the industry kind of hiccuped, and we saw a real slowdown in craft, and it almost looked like craft was gonna be just this trend that faded away. A lot of breweries closed, and we really had a lot of trouble in the US. Um, and then we had this resurgence through the 2000s, and now, more recently, uh, if, you, if you look at the statistics, you probably heard this before, in the United States, there's still two breweries opening every day, and we're crossed, I think we have something like 7,500 small breweries in the United States now. 
And mind you, back, um, you know, post-prohibition, we had prohibition, so every brewery closed in 33. A few rise, you know, opened back up post-prohibition. And then after the wars, we were down to less than, I think, 70 actual functioning breweries in the country in the 70s and early 80s. And then homebrewing was re-legalized uh, in the Carter administration, and we saw this very fast uptick as homebrewers became small, craft brewers became regional brewers, and now it's like two breweries every day. That's a lot of new breweries. They say that there's a brewery within 10 miles of every person in the United States. You know, so it's gone from kind of a beer desert to an incredible oasis. Um, that's, that's a little tricky for a, an established brewery like our own because now there's a lot of, you know, a lot of little breweries nipping at our heels and taking our tap handles and we've had to learn how to kind of market and live in this brave new world, which for a brewmaster basically means that we're innovating a lot more. You know, we used to be able to put a new beer out every two or three years and that would satisfy the demand of our consumers. They were really tied into single brands. Now everyone's got, you know, Instagram, like, you know, attention deficit, like, you can't make enough new beers for people. They get bored really quickly. So, um, you know, I've seen, I've kind of seen it all, it seems. Um, is everyone kind of experiencing that, that warmth inside that you only get from having a 12.5% beer at one o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah. Everyone, everyone a fan of Sticky Monkey? Everyone ready for another beer? We've got uh, the, uh, the second beer that we'll uh, dish out now. Um, Matt, tell us a bit about undercurrents. So I already mentioned a little bit about our uh, barrel aging programs and the wild beer program. Jim Crooks uh, is the mad scientist behind these beers. Um, we really started out with a focus on regional terroir. We wanted, to, you know, we kind of wanted to get back to our roots. This was our chance to take these wine barrels that Adam and David had originally wanted to use and actually make a beer with them. So we source wine baker, uh, wine maker, wine, wine barrels from local winemakers. Um, we really want some of that microflora that came in with the grapes uh, and is stuck in those barrel staves to be part of the process. So we produce the wort in our main brewery in Paso Robles. We tanker it down to barrel works just as worts with no yeast. And we allow Jim, who usually starts the inoculation with Britannomyces and does the primary with Britannomyces, to then create the beer. Um, the barrels, it's now a mixed culture that's probably a mix of wine yeast, Britannomyces, and some of the other you know, lactobacillus and other critters. This particular beer, now Jim's been at it uh, a little over six years, so we've amassed a pretty good seller. Someone asked me earlier, we have about 4,000 hectoliters in oak right now, but mind you, we, don't, we sell less than 1,000 hectoliters a year. So we have a lot of three-year, uh, two-year, and some younger one-year beer. So when Jim goes to make a blend, uh, this started out just as a pale uh, blended beer. He blended one and three-year beer with no fruit, and then added the currants and did about a three to four month re-fermentation with the currants. And that's where you get all of this really deep color, uh, some of the fruity characteristics. Um, I would say our program is, you know, unique maybe is one way you could say it, but we really don't try to make these big, sweet, jammy beers. We really like dry, attenuated beer. There's no fermentable sugar left in that that, that ferments to near dryness. Um, it, it comes out of the barrels flat and it's re-fermented in the bottle, so all the carbonation came from a natural wine yeast fermentation in the bottle. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty basic program in that way. 
Uh, you'll be glad to hear, by the way, this one is just 6.3%, so we've gone down a bit. Um, it's a gorgeous beer. I'm not sure a taste is going to be enough of this, because it's one, it's one of those beers that kind of the taste develops as, as you kind of go through it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to come off that sweet uh, spirits barrel-aged beer into this really tart um, kind of dry beer. I actually could use one, though. <laughs> I think you're allowed. Um, <clears throat> who are your other favorite breweries, then? Uh, both in the UK and, and around the world. Yeah. Um, so it was funny, back, back before we had any beer in the UK, there was this interesting uh, collaboration program that was done. I, I, I knew nothing of what Weatherspoons was, and I don't know if Weatherspoons has a good or a bad reputation, but they paid me to come over to the UK, I think, three different times to do collaborations. I did one at Adnams, I did one with Marston's and Burton on Trent, where I got to actually see the unions be filled and make a beer with them. And we did another one, oh, it's, it's escaping me right now. But, you know, getting inside of these old uh, U UK breweries was a dream come true for me, especially Marston's, you know, and I know Marston's a pretty industrial brewery and it's also been bought and sold a few times or whatever, but um, to see the union set working for me was a magical experience. It was like going to church. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think Marston's one of my desert island beers, but the process of using the union and the fact that they're still doing that is, is something pretty special. Back in the U.S., it really comes down to I've been around long enough now that I've become fast friends with a lot of brewers. So I am partial to Russian River, and, and Vinny and Natalie have, have built an amazing brewery there, if you're familiar with their beers. And they were a huge inspiration for our, our wild beer program. Um, you know, I could go around the cu country and, and tell you all sorts of my favorites. I think Allagash on the other coast uh, up in Portland, Maine, makes some beautiful beers and has a great spontaneous beer program. Uh, they make a spot-on Belgian white. Um, it's hard not to mention Sierra Nevada Brewing Company since they're just kind of a legend, and Ken Grossman has just done such a great job of, I think, supporting the industry and teaching us all and, and, and guiding us through, I think, his example and what a, a good brewery, how they should behave in the trade and how they should make their beer. Um, there's, there's a rule to the answer to this question, which is you're not allowed to pick your own, but what's uh, your favorite beer that you've had at Peak Ender so far this weekend? Ooh, well... Uh, last night we crushed a couple pints of stone and wood, uh, freshly dry hopped with Galaxy, and you know it's it's such a simple beer on paper, but boy that beer was tasting good last night. Um, everything in the Thornbridge tent was insane. The the English bitter on 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 pull because we don't really have a good cask heritage at all in the United States. It's really hard to find cask ale there, um, and uh, so that's 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 why when I come to the UK I can just park at the at a you know in front of a beer engine and watch that all day long. It's just fascinating. I was videotaping the guys pouring beers last night and I look at him and I'm like, what's going on? Oh, that's so cool. Okay, um, I'm going to throw it open to the audience if anyone has a question they'd like to ask. Uh, rules for this bit, just pop your hand in the air and just at the beginning, just um, introduce yourself, tell us your name if you will. Uh, this is nice and easy, you've got the first row. Hello, my name is Stuart. Um, in the UK we have, like, uh, certainly with the craft beer revolution, um, exercises started to become part of it so we have like the McKellar Run Club that went out today um, but also Magic Rock and Brewdog are doing like cycling clubs is there anything like that in, the, in America? Well you know Mickle is everywhere so there is the McKellar Running Club and I've seen some events in and around California um, and what's funny is health and wellness has been a bit of a theme more recently in craft and I don't you know I don't know if that's all we're all waking up and realizing hey we need to get back back in shape or what it is I think it's I think it's great um, um, so to answer your question I think there is uh, more and more focus on that 
And um, I think that, you know, myself personally, I find, uh, you know, making low, you know, forget about the calories, but just low alcohol sessionable beers is actually pretty tricky. Like, Rob's got it nailed down at Thornbridge on some of those beers, the low alcohol and the balance there. And I think there's a lot to learn in that. I think in the United States for a while, it was just all about like seven plus percent alcohol. You go into the Tornado and look at their tap list and you couldn't find anything under 7% alcohol to drink. You're like, I just want a pint of beer I can actually drink two of, you know? Um, so I think that's a trend that's happening in the States. That's a positive one. We've got a trend in, in the UK over the last couple of years for really low alcohol beers, so kind of like 3% and, and under. Um, is, is that a thing in, in the States? It's, I think it's become a thing over here because people are willing to pay money for low alcohol beers where they weren't a few years ago. Um, so it's worth the brewery spending the money on it. Yeah, Rob and I were talking about this yesterday. It is a, it's, a, it's a recent trend, but I, the, the alcohol part of it still I don't think is the main focus. I think calories and, you know, I don't know if that's because we're just so vain in the United States or what's going <laughs> on. Or, you know, there is this, this kind of light beer craze that was so popular in the United States for so long. So when I say health and wellness, I think a lot of that is, okay, this beer is sensible in alcohol, but maybe even more importantly to a lot of our consumers, it's less in calories which means they're just gonna drink twice as many of them or something. You know, I'm not really sure how that all works in the end. Um, certainly our brewery is taking note. Um, zero percent alcohol or non-alcohol is also something that is, is going in a million different directions right now. You're seeing breweries that are doing THC infused. Uh, Lagunitas is kind of famous or infamous for their THC infused uh, sparkling water that's dry hopped. So it tastes like a beer and it gives you a similar you know, uh, feeling of wellness, so to speak, but it's from the THC rather than from alcohol. Any other questions? There's someone over this side. Um, here you go, sir. Hi, my name's Mark. Um, how much interaction do you have between the different breweries you've got? Do you work together, kind of coming up on different recipes, or do you kind of, are you all completely independent? You mean within the Firestone group yeah, or within, within the, the Duval group? Uh, within the Firestone, okay. really, yeah. Yeah, within Firestone, we're all, yeah, we're, we're, we're networked pretty tightly. I would say that the Wild Beer program probably is the most separated because it's such a different process. Um, and uh, certainly, though, we are linked uh, directly to our R&D plant because we're getting a lot of information. And in fact, we rotate brewers through that program. Uh, and right now, our seller manager, who is one of the most valuable guys on my team, is down uh, working on our R&D plant. Um, yeah, so we stay pretty tight. And within the Duval group, quite honestly, we all work so independently. I mean, we sometimes forget. We got this video conferencing system so that we could actually sit down and have brewer-to-brewer -brewer conversations because, you know, there's so much information to share amongst the groups, but everybody gets kind of head down into their own process, and we kind of caught ourselves not really interacting when we had all this at our, dis you know, all this knowledge at our disposal. So that's something that we're working harder to get the group to discuss more. You're missing all the drama on this side. We've got a wasp that's clearly a big fan of your beers. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, just at the back. Hey, I'm James. I was wondering if you had, uh, if you guys draw influence outside of beer or from people working outside of beer? Uh, that's a great question. I, I feel like I get a lot of influence from the music industry and, and maybe, you know, that's just kind of more in spirit than in, you know, what's really applicable. Um, you know, I, I think of, in some ways, I think of beers as songs, you know, it's like, as a brewmaster, you kind of like, you write this song, and then you end up playing it over and over and over again, right? And then you try to like, somehow give it a unique twist through either marketing, or, you know, maybe through uh, tweaks to the recipe over time. Um, 
I think other influence though, definitely the food industry. Um, you know, it's funny, it's like we get caught late at night watching the Food Network, watching these shows about chefs, and it's just like, man, this is just like the beer industry. Like, these guys get that focused and that geeked out on finding raw materials and creating flavors. Um, so I think we get a lot of inspiration from that as well. But I certainly get a lot of informa uh, inspiration from within the industry, like, you know, coming and visiting and walking through Rob's Brewery and, you know, the wheels start turning and you... You know, you remember things you forgot or you see little things. Like, I'm going to go home and make a cascale. There's no way around it. I'm, I'm going to go home and, like, fire up the union and make something really special and, and put it in a cask uh, after this trip for sure. Any more questions for Matt? Uh, I'll come back to you in a second. Just going to go over here. I was just wondering, will you ever produce beer to go with specific foods? Like, wine does that, and obviously you started, or it started from a winery vineyard mm. um do you think you'll ever go down that route and say this beer is specifically for like a steak and chips or a yeah fish no and that's chips? that's a that's a really great question because i think you know garrett oliver at brooklyn has definitely done that he's worked with chefs and he developed a blue apron beer for instance i think that was a thomas that went into a thomas keller restaurant specifically with certain food types in mind um, he certainly has been way ahead of us all i think in that regard Garrett has been. I know that Russian River has done that also working with some Napa chefs. We haven't, now that I think about it, ever formulated a beer specifically with this like dish in mind. We've done a ton of beer dinners obviously and worked with chefs to pair our existing beers, but I love that notion. I mean, we haven't ourselves. I've seen it done though. Um, I, I asked this question of, uh, of Rob last night in the, in the meat brew that we did in the, the tent next door, um, and I'll tell you his answer in a second. If you, um, if you weren't a brewing, if the beer industry went kaput tomorrow uh, and you had to find a different job, what would be your backup career? Uh, Rob, by the way, was a dog walker. Yeah, he stole that was... my... That, yeah, being a dog walker would be my dream. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure I, what I could do, you know. A short order chef in, like, some kind of diner, maybe. I grew up in a restaurant. My dad's got a restaurant. I go back home and cook in the restaurant, I suppose. All right, we'll get to the, uh, the front row. What's your question? Uh, hi there. Um, the U.S. market, cross market's kind of ahead of the U.K. the whole time. What do you think could be learned going moving forward in the UK from the US market? You know, it's funny, five, ten years ago we used to think we were so far ahead and then I come here and I taste the beers and in terms of the creativity, the technology applied, you know, the marketing, the, the graphics on the cans, I mean some of this stuff is just insanely amazing and progressive. I'm not so sure that we are that ahead. Maybe we are in volume and maturity of our market. So I guess that would be what I would focus on is maybe don't make the same mistakes we have. You know, I think some breweries very recently overextended themselves, and that's why we got into so much of this merger and acquisition stuff. You know, Firestone was lucky that we did it on our own terms. We weren't forced to because we had so much debt we needed to find someone quickly to help pay off our debt. So I think that is something that could be learned. You know, s slow and steady wins the race. You don't need to blow up overnight. In fact, that's very difficult quality-wise to keep the quality. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think you guys are there, really, what I see anyway in taste. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I see the same thing, like, we, I went to South America 10, 12 years ago, and it was like, you know, archaic craft brewing, and it was like, oh, these guys have a long ways to go, and then I came, went back like maybe five years ago, and I had some of the best beers I ever tasted. So people learn quickly. And, and get up to speed rather quickly in this industry. A lot of young, creative people in the craft world. Any more questions for Matt around the room? We'll take one more. Hello, I'm Heather. Um, 
we live in Bristol and we've got like a, our craft beer scenes all about hanging out in the brewery tap rooms and we were just wondering like is Firestone Walker somewhere you can go on a Friday night after work and hang out with the brewers and have some sticky monkey <laughs> yeah yeah we we try to discourage drinking on the job which has been interesting because I, I I'll eat lunch at Duval now that I'm doing this this beer sabbatical and maybe I shouldn't be saying this but some of those guys drink a couple Duvals on their lunch break and I'm like I don't know how you do that I, I usually take a pass on that but after work yeah we have what we call a shift pint uh, the brewers can get together and are encouraged to kind of get together and and do some socializing the only other unfortunate thing about California is we're so spread out and we're forced to drive to and from work so we try not to encourage you know more than a pint if you're gonna drive home or something like that, because obviously we don't want our employees out there drinking and driving and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, we try to do, we have a, what we call a culture, culturation program, which is all about like creating opportunities for our employees to network and get together and go do a, a baseball game or something like that, or, or promote an after work uh, you know, socialization between the departments. Because obviously the brewers see each other every day, but you know, there's, there's everybody from logistics to the front office to the sales team, and the more they interact, the better the company's going to do, and, and the better everyone feels at work anyway, right? So, uh, and what's kind of the public access like? Would 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 kind of remember the public be able to come and have a, a, a beer at the brewery? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we have a restaurant in tap room at our Paso Robles facility, along with a visitor center for taking tours and things like that. Uh, Buellton, the, the Barrel Works has its own kind of restaurant and cool like visitor experience and then the the R&D plant is in a, it's basically a brew pub it's in a restaurant in in Venice so yeah okay final question from um, me what what do you think the future holds for Firestone Walker ah oh, that's a million dollar question I wish I had that crystal ball um, no I think I think what's happening and maybe someone asked this question before and I didn't fully answer it is that what we're seeing in the United States whereas you know you could grow by just simply opening a new state, you know, there's 50 states in the union and, you know, we can legally distribute in all of those. But we, we woke up and realized that we sell more than 80% of our beer in California and that if we keep our regional close market healthy, that's the future. Um, we could probably afford to even slow down and retract as long as we kept California healthy because it's such a, you know, it's, we can get fresh beer to trade, uh, you know, so quality is good. It's less expensive to truck beer there. In fact, the carbon footprint is lower, and I think we're starting to become more and more tuned into that. Like selling beer on the East Coast of the United States, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away doesn't really make much sense when there's such good beer brewed there already. Um, so I think that the future is uh, almost a consolidation and just working on our local market more and becoming a, just a California brewery. Yeah. So you're around for the rest of the weekend if anyone wants to grab a beer with you and have a chat afterwards? Yes. Absolutely. absolutely. Please. Matt, thank you for your time. Round of applause, please, for Matt Brindleson. Yeah.